Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You have spoken to us in Your Word. We thank You that in Your Word we find the words of life. But we know that if Your Spirit, if He is not among us this morning, there will be no life. So we ask, Lord, that as Your Word is declared, that Your Spirit, He would be active, granting us eyes to see and hearts to believe. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. How are we to live in times that we find ourselves in today? How do we spend the time that God has given us? How do we spend our energies and our resources? Because these really are strange times uh, that we live in, where the foundations are being shook all around us, and I think God is doing that intentionally to force us to ask certain questions. Evil is manifesting itself in more blatant ways, and good often seems like it's on the run. And of course, such challenges are really nothing new for God's people. The pages of Scripture are filled with the stories of dark times, where evil advances in the short term, and where it seems like God's people stand no chance. Evil is ever painting itself as if it is the good, and as if it is strong, and as if it is inevitable. But the Bible reminds us again and again, God wins, evil loses. And so this is true, whether it is God's people facing off with the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the corruptions of the medieval times, of the marriage of the Roman Catholic Church in the state, or the current insanity of woke mobs today. These are really nothing new for us to face. Dark times are kind of the standard. But the question remains, how then should you and I live? How do we respond to life in times that are often unsettling? And when we were um, wrapping up our series on Ecclesiastes, one of you asked me, Pastor, where are we going next? And I said, well, we're going to go to the book of Colossians but I'm not really too excited about it at all. And he responded to me, and he said, I think it's going to be a great series. I have to confess to you this morning, he was right, and I was wrong. And I don't mean that because I've done a great job preaching through the series, but rather that Colossians is a book that is dripping with truth, goodness, and beauty. And the words we have here today in this passage are words that you can directly apply to today, to tomorrow, and the days that are coming. And at the center of this book, we have seen again and again the universal rule and reign and lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul, throughout his letters, he has this standard way in which he writes. He builds the theological foundation that we should build our lives upon, and then he offers us applications. How then should we live? And we've been firmly in that application a portion for quite some time now, several weeks, and, and this week is really no different. How do we use our time knowing that Jesus Christ created everything, that Jesus Christ holds all things together, that he's going to inherit everything, and that he died for everything? How then do we live? How do we um, declare that into all of life, but also knowing that the darkness appears to be growing at our present moment? What can you do in the face of those type of odds. For make no mistake, there is hatred for you out there. 
There are people who hate what we are doing this morning out there. There are people, if given the power, would want to make this illegal and die out. And it is only by the grace of God that such things have not happened. And so we can look out into this world and we can see God's people have enemies. Nothing new. Right? God's people have always had enemies. And we can also see that some, at least in some quarters of the church, things don't look very good. Within the last week or so, um, R.C. Sproul's ministry, Ligonier, released its annual State of Theology survey to see what, does Amer- what do Americans believe, and even more important than that, what do evangelicals in America believe? All right, so they send out these surveys to all these Christians. They have some agency do that. Who knows what they're doing? And the results, well, they're not really pretty within the church. Let me give you a few of them. According to this study, 62% of evangelicals believe that we are born without sin. 62%. It's basic Christian doctrine that they deny. 56% of evangelicals believe that God accepts the worship of all religions. Yeah. And if you think this is a one-off, you can see they put all this the years. It's been increasing each year. Right? Each of these questions. 43% of evangelicals deny that Jesus Christ is God. Yeah, you're not really an evangelical then, if you do that. Right? Just spoiler alert. 38% believe religious beliefs are not a matter of objective truth. Such results should make you and me sad. It should make us examine what exactly are we doing on a large scale of evangelicalism as churches that we get this kind of fruit. Because whatever you're sowing with that, it ain't working. All right, these, these are not new results. They come out every year and they show the same problems and largely the evangelical church just yawns. They just don't care. We have uh, empires to build, celebrity culture to prop up. The answer, or so we ask the question again, how should we use our time? And the answer to that is given to us in Colossians 4, Verses 2 through 6 is a call to live explicitly under the Lordship of Christ in both word and in deed. And so we are going to unpack that here this morning. The first way for you to use your time in times like this that are dark and uncertain is to pray. That's the first thing Paul gives us here. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. And to pray, I should say, with a faithful expectancy. He writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thankful or thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So note the character of this prayer that Paul wants us to do. This is a prayer that is steadfast, full of thanksgiving. It is watchful and it is even evangelistic. The church is the house of God in this age on this earth. And as the house of God, the church is to be a house of prayer. This is where we go to commune with God. This is where we go to petition, or to petition our God. And our prayers need to be more than just a wish list that we check off, saying, well, we've done that now. Rather, our prayers are urgent, hope-filled pleas to the maker of heaven and earth. And we are called to offer them in confidence and expectation. 
And so Paul says we should be steadfast in our prayer. With so many distractions today, we can easily fail to take the time to purposefully, intentionally enter into a quietness of prayer. You can do a million other things with your time than praying. And the world and Satan would love for you to do a million other things with your time besides praying. To go to the Lord steadfastly means we are called to go to Him over and over again asking that He might answer our prayers day in and day out. Christ commands us to pray. And He has commanded us to know and to encourage our prayer that our God is a good Father who wants to say yes to your prayers. And He also demands, though, that you do that with some discipline in your life. That it should be a priority. Paul then also says that our prayers should be filled with thankfulness because God has saved us. He has done so at the cost of His own Son. And He has achieved victory for us over sin, death, and Satan. Therefore, even when the world seems insane, you can be thankful. For God has done done something more important, more foundational. Our prayers are also to be watchful. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving, Paul says. Well, what what does that mean? What does it mean to have a watchful prayer life? In the most basic sense, it is a point to our eschatological hope. It's a fancy word for our end times hope. That is the coming of Christ's kingdom. Like Christ's call to His people to be expecting His return and to be watchful and to keep the candle burning, so should your prayer life be watchful. You pray motivated by the coming of the kingdom of Christ. That His kingdom would, as Christ again commanded us to pray, that His kingdom and His will would be done and come to this earth. That is, the end the world is moving toward. God has appointed prayer as the means by which His will is accomplished in this life. So far from it just being a defunct thing that you should do as a Christian, God has actually appointed that through the prayer of His people, that His will is accomplished in this age. David Powell, in his commentary on Colossians, he puts it this way. He says to Paul, prayer is not simply an act of presenting one's personal wishes and desires to God. Rather, it is a way for believers to participate in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan in history. So this, this is the irony of it all. God commands you to pray that the world might be changed. He equips and encourages you to pray that the world might be changed. And then He uses your prayer to change the world. Pray. Pray steadfastly. Pray in the face of the present darkness. Whatever darkness you may be facing. Pray boldly. Pray steadfastly. Pray in faith. Pray in season and pray out of season so that Christ's enemies would be tread under His feet. That evil will be exposed and embarrassed. That the wicked would be driven out and that the kingdom of God would come to earth. That is our marching orders. Finally, we are to pray that doors would be opened for the gospel to go forward. There's no uh, small touch of irony here because Paul writes these words as his doors are literally locked shut. He's in prison. 
says, pray that doors would be opened, that the door would be opened, that I might be able to continue to preach the gospel. We are called to pray for the open doors of the gospel, or for the gospel, so that it might go forward. That Paul might be free is certainly part of it here, but that the larger picture is here is that the government would no longer hinder his preaching of the gospel. That opportunities would arise for the preaching of the gospel and the glories of Christ. And I guess the elephant in the room here is do you and I pray that way? Do you pray that a door might be opened that you might be able to share the gospel with someone? And if that door were actually opened, would you step through it? Or would you be too nervous? Prayer is an appointed means of opening doors for the gospel. So pray for open doors for your unbelieving neighbors and family. Pray for open doors in the dark places where the gospel is mocked and hold in derision, like Hollywood and Washington, D.C. Pray for your community. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your missionaries that we support. Pray for nations where Christians are persecuted and imprisoned. Pray against evil rulers like those in China who seek to suppress the gospel. Pray for the persecuted church. This is one of God's appointed means to defeat the darkness. Don't belittle it. Oftentimes when something bad happens in today's society, people will say thoughts and prayers are going out. And I don't know what it means that thoughts are going out. What does that even do? I guess, yeah. And then people always respond, we need more than prayer. And I get it. You can just say on social media, I'm praying for you, and it's, you don't. And it can be really trite, right? But prayer is no small thing. Prayer is God's appointed means of changing you and this world. What else are we to do with our time? How else do we use our time wisely? Look at verse 3 again, and then verse 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear um, which is how I ought to speak. Paul wants us to pray for open doors and so that we might declare or preach the mystery of Christ and do so clearly. What is this mystery of Christ? Well, at the end of chapter 1, Paul speaks of this mystery. He speaks of it again in chapter 2. And that mystery is really who Jesus is and that he is one with his people. Right? This is a theme that has run throughout the entire book. Who is this Jesus? Colossians 1, 15-20. He is the one who created everything. He's the one who holds all things together. He is the one that everything was made for. He is the one who died for everything, who's coming back for everything. That is the mystery of Christ. To put it another way, that mystery has been revealed already. It's not something you have to uncover. God, rather, has revealed it to us in His Word and through the work of Christ so that people might know. It is Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And that is the very message that got Him locked up in the first place. That Christ died not just for your sins, though that is at the heart of it, but that Christ is God. That He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that everyone should bend their knee to Him, including, and even, and especially, Caesar. Anything less than a Christ who is King of kings and Lord of lords is a lacking 
and deficient gospel. It's an, it's an attempt to conceal what God has already revealed. God has said, this is who Jesus is. And we say, well, let's, let's cover up that part. No, you don't get to do that. Paul makes an interesting point here. He says, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Now, why do you think Paul needs the church in Colossae to pray for him that he might make the gospel clear? Is it because that he's such an overly academic person that you can't understand what he's saying? No, that's not it. Is it because Paul struggles at making a clear argument? No, he's actually one of the more clear Bible writers in my opinion. It's rather because he knows the temptation to not make it clear. He knows, as he's sitting in prison, how cowardice can sneak in and he can be tempted to muddy the waters so that the persecution might go away. Do we not feel the same temptation? To lack clarity. There were then, and there are now, certain points of the Gospel which really, really make people angry. Right? And the temptation would be to avoid those topics. The temptation would be to nuance those to death so that they really don't mean anything. The temptation would be to explain them away, all in an attempt to appeal to the unbelieving world. But hear me on this. Whoever you fear most is your master. Whoever you are most afraid of offending is your true master. This is why Jesus says you can't serve two. You have to pick one. And if you have to pick between making the world angry and making Christ angry, the choice should be clear. You choose Christ to follow over the world. And this is ever the pressure for the church. For the world thinks it knows what Christians believe. And they often arrive at their conclusions about us because they actually don't know what the church believes. The amount of people you can encounter who think they know what Christians actually believe and therefore hate them, but actually have never flipped open a Bible is rather large. They've heard a lot of propaganda about us. And so you can understand the temptation and the, the good desire to explain away their misconceptions, because there are a lot of them. But in that, we cannot avoid being clear as to what we actually believe, especially at the points where we are in disagreement with the world. And this, I fear, is a very lost virtue, especially in the American pulpit. If we go back to those early, earlier stats about what American evangelicals believe, Certainly the pulpits in America bear some of the blame for that. Because they have not taught these things. They have not taught them clearly. We want to be understood. We want to be accepted. And so, we want them to not believe that we are the boogeyman that the media tells them that we are. And so we let their sensibilities set the church's agenda. And we start to care more about what the world thinks about us and how they will treat us than what God thinks about us. And so we neglect clear speech. But Paul says here, we must make our testimony of Christ clear, understandable, straightforward, even if it's offensive. So I must caution you here. We don't live to just bother people. There's a whole, there's a whole overreaction in evangelicalism. It's like, well, I'm just going to be the biggest jerk I can be then because the world's already going to hate me. 
Yeah, it's probably not the best strategy either. But rather, our clearness in speech is motivated by a love of God and a love of neighbor. We love the truth because it comes from God. And we speak it plainly, and we don't hide what we believe because it is only through clear communication of the gospel that your neighbors, your family members, your co-workers will be saved. And we love them too. For too long, the church has associated smooth and flattering speech with faithful ministry. The Bible attaches, more often than not, smooth and elegant speech to false teachers. We think this guy's got a great ministry because he's really easy to listen to. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes he's a wolf. Preachers can flatter, they can tell stories, they can be funny, they can find out what people want to hear and then tell them exactly what they want to hear. They can muddy the waters and avoid things that will rock the boat and they can grow their ministries and it goes down smoothly, but it kills. Again and again, the Bible warns us about those teachers who will scratch your itching ears. And we've got a lot of those today. Don't get me wrong, eloquence can be used for good, but eloquence should also be used to be plain in speech. Look again at what Paul says here. That I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I ought to speak this way. I ought to make sure that people understand exactly what it is I'm saying. This is a fitting and necessary qualification if you ever want to be in ministry. Someday, whenever the Lord appoints the time, you will... You as a body will have to hire a new pastor who will not be me, who will not be six foot seven and slightly awkward. One of the qualifications you must have for him is that he would speak plainly and clearly, that he will not tickle your ears because the gospel is too important. This is how we ought to speak. It should not be hard to find, and I have to confess, in dealing with many, many pastors, it is hard to find those who will speak clearly. It should not be hard to find among Christian leaders clear and direct answers to questions. And if they will not answer things clearly, then there's probably a good reason they won't, and you probably shouldn't listen to them. Christianity stands or falls on whether or not it is true to reality. If it is, then we are called to speak like it is. If it is not true to reality, then it is dangerous and it should be tossed out. There's no middle ground here. Christianity can't just be a nice thing you can add to your life. It's either true and you treat it like that or it's dangerous because it's a lie. Now those of us in Christ know that it is true. Therefore, we must make it clear. We are called to speak as dying men to those who are also dying. This is a message of hope. It's a message of life and light. It transforms us from the inside out. It brings meaning and purpose. It strengthens and emboldens. It increases our beauty and it overcomes sin and death. To put it plainly, this message is urgent and important. Therefore, treat it that way. What else can we do in these dark times besides pray and declare Christ? Well, Paul continues in verses 5-6. through six. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer 
each person. The way we live or walk here must match our message. This ties into what Paul said in Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Word and deed, declaring and walking. That is, whatever you are doing, the Lordship of Christ has to be at the center of it. That there should be a unity and a coherence to your whole life. As the old saying goes, we are called to practice the very things that we preach. And just as a lack of clarity in our words undermines the gospel, if there's a lack of clarity in how we walk, that also undermines the gospel. It also works against us. Few things do more damage to the message of Christ than hypocritical living of so-called Christians, especially Christian leaders. There are hundreds and thousands of faithful pastors out there. They never get a headline. But as soon as one of them falls, he gets all of the headlines. You see it happen all the time. You must practice what you preach. What does it mean to walk in wisdom, as Paul says here? Well, again, he's already told them, or told us, what wisdom is in this book. Look at Colossians 2, verse 3. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To walk wisely means to recognize that Christ is the source of all wisdom. To rely on Him for wisdom and direction and counsel and truth. It is to operate through all of life knowing that Jesus Christ reigns over absolutely everything. If there is an area of life where you say, Jesus is not Lord here, then in that area of life you are not walking in wisdom. You are a fool. That's what Paul wants you to see. It is through such an integrated life that you can make the most of the time. For in this world, Christ reigns. He reigns over everything, including your time. He is the king, and you are called to bend the knee. But this walking also includes speaking words. Words of grace, he says, and words of salt. Grace here is not what you would immediately think it to be. That is, use gracious words that are winsome and kind. Rather, this is a reference to your words being filled with the grace of God. That is, the power of God. Again, David Powell on this in his commentary. Let your words be full of power of God as you speak in submission to and with the objective proclaiming of the Lordship of Christ. That is what it means to have gracious words, that your words are dripping with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That He is at the center of it all. And this is to be done in a salty way. That is, salt is flavorful. It preserves, it heals. Our words, as they center on Christ and His Lordship, are a part of the way that God brings renewal, restoration, and life. He then goes on to say, we must be ready to provide answers for why we are the way that we are. Put it plainly, you need to be able to answer basic questions as to why you're a Christian. If someone were to come up to you and say, Levi, why are you so different? You need to be able to answer that question. Now, you don't need to be able to answer every possible question that could come up. In my uh, almost nine years of ministry, there are many times someone has asked me a question 
and I did not know where to begin. And I would say to him, you know what, that's a good question. I'm going to look into it, and I'm going to get back to you. That's fair. Don't let your limited knowledge prevent you from offering basic answers. You see, the world has questions, and God has given answers in Scripture. And we need to be able to at least answer a basic level of questions. The problem, of course, is if you want to know common questions in your day, then you're going to need to understand where your society is at. What are the questions that unbelievers are asking and wrestling with? And that's where I think so many pastors fall short. John Stott, in his book on preaching, called Between Two Worlds, makes the point that preachers must connect the world of Scripture with the modern world. Right? So you're stuck as a preacher, he says, between these two worlds, the world of Scripture and the world uh, that we live in. And in a sense, though this may be shocking for some of you, I think he's wrong. Right? I don't think there are two worlds. The world of Scripture is the world you and I live in today. Has the culture changed some? Yes. Has the fundamental realities of this world changed? The sinfulness of man, the goodness of God, the beauty of his creation, the need of a savior. Have any of those things changed? No. It's fundamentally the same. But where he is correct is that far too often, pastors make it seem like that there is no connection between scripture and what we have today. Pastors do this often because they can feel safe staying in biblical times where no one will confront them and where they know within their congregation that they probably know the most, so no one's really going to challenge them. But the church, as it speaks clearly and with power, must enter into the discussions that are happening in its culture. And it must do so uniquely as Christians. The sad news is that many Christians... And many pastors will either mimic the slogans they find in the unbelieving world, or they are totally clueless to the real questions facing men and women. Francis Schaeffer commented on this 50 years ago. He talks about pastors like me. He says, Thus men go out from the theological seminaries not knowing how to relate it. That is the Christian faith. It is not that they do not know the answers, but my observation is that most men graduating from our theological seminaries don't even know the questions. I think he's right, and I don't think it's gotten any better in the last 50 years. You cannot blame pastors wholly on this because most of their seminaries haven't trained them to be ready for the questions. And in some cases, they're actually told that good ministry is avoiding those questions altogether. Because those answers, some people won't like. So he speaks again of of his own ministry. He said, It would be impossible to say how many people have come to Labrie from Christian backgrounds, and these young people have said, You are our last hope. Why? Because they are smart enough to know that they have been given no answers. They have simply been told to believe. Doctrines have been given them without relating them to the hard, hard problems which these young people are facing. Just believe is not the answer that Scripture gives. It certainly calls us to faith, but it also provides reasons for our faith. And we must be ready to answer those questions. Let me put it another way. There is no question out there, in fact, there is no movement out there, of which the church should be afraid of. The more I study church history, the more I I read books, and the more my to-read list grows and I never catch up on it, you realize that 
all of these issues have been answered. They've been answered by far smarter men and women than, than me. But the answers are all there. They've been given. And they've all been given in God's word. word, word. So again, I want to put this promotion out to you. If you want to be able to answer some of these basic questions, October 14th and 15th, we're going to have that worldview seminar here. Sign up and come. That's why I wrote that curriculum. That's why I went back to school and did more work. It's because the answers are there. And the church is in desperate need of those answers. So how do we spend our time in these dark days? Well, Colossians 4 tells us to pray, to declare the gospel, to live it out, and to provide the answers that God has given. And the darkness hates when we do that. We must note the famous uh, saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, though it's quite likely that he never actually said this. But you hear it all the time. It says, preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words. As nice as that saying sounds, it's actually pure hogwash. It's, it's really just silly. Sharing the gospel, hear me on this, is never less than living rightly. But it's always more than that. It's never less than living out what you say you believe. But faith, the Bible tells us, comes through hearing. Words are necessary. In fact, God saw fit to record words for us throughout the centuries so that you might have it. Words are always necessary at some point for a conversion to happen. And here in Colossians 4, Paul unites the need for both words, declare this mystery, and walk wisely. Words and living are to go together as Christians. Words in prayer, words in declaration, and a life that matches it. Not a perfect life, but a faithful life. And this is how we are called to spend our days, even if they continue to worsen. Whatever we do in word or deed, we are called to recognize and declare the universal lordship of Christ. And by doing that, we push back against the darkness. This is how God has appointed the kingdom to advance. And he invites us to be a part of it. Your faithful existence... Your faithful prayers, your clear speech, your faithful living are revolutionary acts of defiance against the kingdom of darkness. And they are the very means by which the gospel has spread, continues to spread, and will spread to the ends of the earth. This is how we live in these times. Bringing all of Christ into all of life so that his kingdom might grow. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in your word you have given us words that you have spoken. That you say, do this and don't do that. That we might not have to guess. What is it that you want from us? You have made it plain. So Lord, I ask that your word may bring life and faith and obedience to your people here at Christ Bible Church. May we be those who are known for speaking clearly your gospel that we might be known as those who pray steadfastly for your kingdom and that we might be those who are known to walk the walk, that we align how we live with what we say. Lord, we can only do this by your grace, by the power of your spirit. 
So we ask that you would make us that kind of church. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.